Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The population of the world is just under 5 billion people. If you count everybody that even remotely claims the name Christian, only 32% of the people in the world are Christians. Is God's side losing the war for the world. Seriously, if you were to look at the total global situation, Christians are in the minority. I mean, even if you give us every conceivable possible person to count, we are still in the minority. Now, what does that have to say about God's program in the world? Is God somehow limited so that he cannot complete his program in the earth? Now, that question has a direct bearing on you personally. For you see, God has made some promises to you if you have trusted his son as your savior. So the real question becomes... Is God able to fulfill those promises to you? That is a very sobering, serious question. Paul contemplates that in the book of Romans. He gets down to the end of chapter 8, and he reiterates some of these promises that God has made to us. He talks about the fact that whom God has justified he has promised to glorify. Another way of saying that if we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have been given the promise by God that we will have an eternal home in heaven. But wait a minute. God's made promises before that apparently he was not able or at least did not fulfill. Take Israel, for example. God made some uh, far-reaching promises to them, but he then sent his son, and the nation of Israel rejected him as their Messiah. Now, what does that have to say about God's program and purpose in the earth? What does that have to say about God's power and ability to fulfill his promises? I mean... It's sort of like the population of the earth, isn't it? Not even the majority claim to be Christians. And within Israel, the very people to whom God gave promises, unconditional promises, why they as a nation rejected him. All of which has to say some very pertinent and important things to us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Very simply, is God's side losing? Now, to answer this question in its totality, you really need to understand three 
chapters of Scripture. You need to understand Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. We have begun a study of those three chapters by looking at the opening verses of Romans 9, where Paul expresses his deep concern for the nation of Israel. Beginning in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9, Paul starts to answer this thorny, tough problem in depth. I would invite your attention to that portion of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Paul, in this passage, is grappling with the problem of what about Israel? He ends chapter 8 by telling us God has made promises to us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Meaning, of course, those promises will be fulfilled. But what about Israel? God made promises to Israel and at the time Paul pens these words, Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. What about the promises of God to Israel? Well, Paul begins this paragraph by saying in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. That statement serves as sort of a summary statement for the rest of the paragraph, which extends through verse 13. The little phrase, the word of God, in this context, is a reference to the promises of God, and particularly to the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. What he says in this verse is that the promises of God have taken no effect. It is not that that has happened. The word no effect in the Greek text is a word that means to fall away. It was used of a flower that faded and fell. It was used of a dream that did not come to pass. So all Paul is saying is this. He is making the statement that the promises of God did not fall. The promises of God did not fail. It is not that the promises of God did not come to pass. Now, that is the point that he's actually making throughout the whole paragraph. He simply states it at the beginning. To say the same thing another way, 
the unbelief of Israel, the fact that the Jews rejected their Messiah, does not mean that God's program has been frustrated. Now that concept needs some explanation. So what Paul does in the next several verses is he points to the Old Testament. He actually gives us three specific illustrations of what he means. And in the process, he quotes a number of passages from the Old Testament himself. So to elaborate and explain this concept, let's look at three illustrations. The first is in verse 6, where he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. You will recall there were three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was called Israel. This statement is a reference to Jacob, and of course, out of him came the whole nation of Israel. What he is saying is this. In his first illustration, he is pointing to Jacob, and he is simply saying that not all of the descendants, the physical descendants of Israel or of Jacob, were the spiritual descendants of Jacob. So he says, they are not all spiritual Israel who are of physical Israel. That is the sense of what he is saying. In other words, he is saying something like this. God gave a promise to Jacob that that promise would be fulfilled in his children. If some of those children fulfill that promise, then the promise was fulfilled. Right? They all would not have to fulfill it in order for it to be fulfilled. If some of them fulfilled it, then it got fulfilled. That's another way of saying what he's stating in verse 6. So, he can make the statement, the word or the promise of God has not failed. It succeeded. Granted, not all of Jacob's children fulfilled the promise, but some of them did. Therefore, the promise was fulfilled. Let me pause here and make a suggestion. The overall subject of all of this, of course, is salvation. This illustration teaches us something about salvation. All of Jacob's descendants, all of the nation of Israel, had advantages. Now I say that because Paul has labored that point in this very passage. Look back at chapter 9, verse 4. He says, Who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers, from whom according to the flesh, Christ, that is the Messiah, came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. Interesting that he should mention in verses 4 and 5 all of the advantages given to the Israelites. And then in verse 6 say, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. All of which leads me to suggest 
that you can have advantages as the nation of Israel had, as all the descendants of Jacob had, and still not be saved. You can live in America where the Word of God shines like the sun in Florida or Southern California. The Word of God is abundantly available in this country. You can hear it every day on television, on radio, or through the printed page. I dare say it would be extremely difficult to travel anywhere in the United States without having daily access to the Word of God. Some of the experts in broadcasting have figured out how many stations you have to be on in order to blanket the United States so that somebody could hear you in this country every day. And the number is not too high. As a matter of fact, if you were on about 40 stations, you could cover 90% of the population of the United States. And I assure you, having traveled from one corner of this country to the other many times, that virtually anywhere you can hear the Scripture being taught. I remember once going to the mission field down in the Caribbean years ago. We were up in a small plane flying over the water and uh, the pilot turned on the radio and we picked up through the Bible and Dr. McGee as we were headed down to one of the remote islands in the Caribbean. We have all the advantages. We have access to the promises of God. But not everyone that has the advantage has been saved. So his first illustration is of Jacob and actually the whole nation of Israel. His second is of Abraham. He says in verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are seeds of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, in this illustration, he's talking, of course, about Abraham. And he is simply saying that God gave Abraham a promise that one of his sons would inherit the blessings. And Abraham had two sons, as you well know, Ishmael and Isaac. But God never intended that just any son of Abraham should fulfill the promise. From the very beginning, that was the case. Abraham didn't understand that at first, and you remember the story. He decided to help God out a little bit. So he had a son by one of his handmaids, one of the slaves. That was Ishmael. And God said, that will not do. So verse 7 says, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Ishmael was an offspring of Abraham, but he did not inherit the promise. He was not the seed of that inherited the promises of God. For he says in verse 7, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And in that, 
He is quoting Genesis 21, verse 12, where God said, I am rejecting uh, Ishmael, and I am telling you that in Isaac your seed shall be called. He explains in verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So he is saying, just because you had a son is not what I intended. What I intended was that I would make you a promise that you would have a son by your wife, Sarah, and he would inherit the promise. So he explains in verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And again, he is quoting the scripture, this time Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 and 14. He is saying, look, my promise and my purpose and my plan and my program was that you would have a son by Sarah. His name would be Isaac and I would give my promises to him. So not all of Abraham's children inherited the promises. Only the one that God originally intended. Now again, let me pause here and make a suggestion. In the case of Jacob, the first illustration, they all had advantages, they all had the promises to Israel, but not all had salvation. In this illustration, I think it would be safe to say that all of Abraham's children, meaning Ishmael and Isaac, had the proper ancestry, but they didn't have salvation. Which is to say that you not only live in America where the Word of God is available, but you may come from a Christian family, one that has followed the Lord, a godly line. But that doesn't mean that salvation is yours. Salvation is not determined or dependent upon your advantages nor upon your ancestry. You can depend on your folks for a whole lot of things. They literally kept you alive when you first arrived. They might have provided you with food and clothing and as you got older, a car and an education. But you cannot depend upon them for your salvation. Both Ishmael and Isaac were descendants of Abraham, but they did not both inherit the promises. There is a third illustration. He begins in verse 10 and says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. And then he makes a parenthetical statement we'll look at in a minute. But he continues, verse 12, It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The third illustration in verses 10 through 13 is of Isaac. This illustration is better than the one of Abraham. In the case of Abraham, he had two sons, all right, but one son was by a bondwoman and the other was by his wife. In the case of Isaac, he had two sons and both were by his wife. 
It is even better yet an illustration of the point he's trying to make because he not only had them by the same woman, he had them by the same woman at the same time. You will recall they were twins so that when Isaac and Rebekah had two children, namely Jacob and Esau, God clearly said, it is Jacob that is going to get the promises. So he says in verse 10, when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even by the father Isaac, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, which is a quotation from Genesis 25, 23. And he quotes in verse 13, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where it is said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In other words, God said, I am going to give the promises to Jacob. And one of the indications of that is that he said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Now that last statement really gives some people a hard time. Did God hate Esau? How do you explain that? I mean, the text says it, and it's a quotation from Malachi. The Bible says it twice. What does the Bible mean when it says God hated Esau? Does that give you a problem? Somebody asked a Bible teacher that once, and he said, that verse gives me a problem, but it's not that God hated Esau. It's that he said he loved Jacob. That's the problem. You want to see how big of a problem that is? Go read Genesis, the story of Jacob. I mean, he was a rascal. He was a, a conniver, if there ever was one. That's the problem. But the problem we have is God said he hated Esau. Now, if you look at the Genesis record carefully, you will discover that this by no stretch of the imagination means that he would not have anything to do with Esau or that he did not provide for Esau. There are abundance of references in the book of Genesis to indicate that God did make provision for Esau. Then what does it mean when it says, Esau have I hated? Put your finger in Romans 9, we're coming back, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 29, and I will give you an illustration of what the Bible means when it says, God hates somebody. Hate in the Bible does not necessarily mean hostility or hatred in the way we normally use the word. It does, however, mean that there is love to a lesser degree. Now, that's the answer. Let me show you how I arrived at it. Look at Genesis chapter 29, verse 30, where we are told, But Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban yet another seven years. Notice Genesis 29, 30 simply says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and the old King James translates it, hated. Ah. So, that text indicates that to be unloved or hated in the biblical sense of the term means to be loved less. Now, fasten your seatbelts for just a moment.
Because what I'm about to say surprises some people. I want to clarify this because I don't want to be misunderstood. I want to go on record as saying, God loves the whole world. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you hear me? God loves the whole world. No question about that. Nor is there any question in my opinion that the Bible recognizes that God loves some people more than others. I told you to fasten your seatbelt. Is that a shock? That's what this verse means. It is not that he did not love Esau. He did. He made provisions for Esau. He was very fair and just to Esau. But at the same time, the simple reality is God loved Jacob more. He let Esau and his descendants reap the just consequences of their disobedience. But he didn't let Jacob do that. He wrestled with Jacob. I think the Apostle Paul is an illustration. How many people have persecuted the church that God didn't go appear to? But he appeared to the Apostle Paul. I think, though that somehow doesn't strike us as right, the simple reality is the Bible teaches that God loves the whole world, has made provision for the whole world. Christ died for the whole world. But the Bible simply teaches there are some people God loves and pursues. Now, let me pause here for just a second before we continue. And let me suggest that this illustration also teaches us something else about salvation. You see, all this was said before these two boys were born. Matter of fact, he quotes two passages. He quotes Genesis 25. He quotes Malachi 1. Genesis 25 was a statement made by God before the two boys were born. And Malachi was a statement made after they were born. Now, we skipped a moment ago, verse 11. I want us to go back and look at part of it anyway. It says, For the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil. So that salvation was not dependent upon their achievement. They weren't even born yet when God said this. God chose Isaac before they were born. And said, he's the one that's going to fulfill the promise. He's the one in whom my plan is going to become a reality. And it had nothing to do with anything he did or didn't do. And that's precisely the point of verse 11. He wasn't even yet born. He didn't even have the time yet to do anything good or anything evil. He hadn't done anything, good or bad. All of which goes to say that salvation does not depend on anything you do. Salvation is not dependent upon my merit or my demerit. It doesn't even do with anything I do. Did I say that too fast? Let me say it again. 
It doesn't have anything to do with anything I do. It's solely based on God's promise and my choice of whether or not I will trust in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with works, whether those works are good or bad. The truth of the matter is that it's not good works that get you to heaven. It's very often the people who do bad works that come to realize the nature and extent of their sin and are convicted and are willing to trust Jesus Christ. Whereas people who do good things usually end up self-righteous and they're so proud they don't trust Jesus Christ. It's very opposite of the way we normally think. So, to go back to Romans chapter 9, the point of this passage is that not all physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob inherit the promises that God made to Israel. That the issue was not their physical relationship to the patriarchs. The application is that it is not dependent upon our advantages, our ancestry, or our achievement as to whether or not we get saved. Then what is the issue? Well, there's a one little phrase we haven't looked at in this paragraph. I would call your attention to verse 11. He says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. That last part of verse 11 is telling us that God's sovereign plan will be fulfilled. That God sovereignly chose and that that's how these people came to know Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election. God sovereignly chose. That is evident throughout every illustration Paul has used. He sovereignly chose. The one in the immediate context of this statement is that of Isaac. God sovereignly chose Isaac before he was born and before he did any works, either good or evil. So, God sovereignly determined it, and God's sovereign purpose will be fulfilled. Now, that concept is stated in this passage twice. It is stated negatively in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Meaning, as I explained a moment ago, it is not that the promise of God has taken no effect. That's the negative statement. The positive statement is in verse 11. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Now, if you want the sum of these verses, underscore those two statements and you got it. What is he saying? He is simply saying that the program of God is based on God's promise. And that promise will not fail and it will not be frustrated, but it will be fulfilled. That's the point of this passage. So to put it all very simply, 
Israel's unbelief, Israel's rejection of the Messiah, does not prove that God's program has failed because it was never God's intent to save all of Israel to begin with. That's the point. To state it all very simply and positively, these verses are teaching that God's sovereign purpose will be fulfilled. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Rather than answering a question, I've probably provoked a few dozen questions. So let me put some things in perspective before I close. The first thing I would quickly say is this. I said it at the beginning. I want to say it again. To get the total answer to this question, you need to know everything that's in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We have only begun. There is much, much more. So before you jump to some conclusions that may be unwarranted, you need to study carefully all that's said in this section of the book of Romans. One of the things you need to know is that you may never understand all of this. Uh, I am of the opinion that Paul goes on especially in Romans 10, to say that Israel did not get saved because they didn't choose to believe. In chapter 9, he says it was all God's sovereign choice. And in chapter 10, he says it was because they chose not to believe. Say, man, that sounds like a contradiction to me. How do you get all that and put it together? Answer, I don't. You need to um, remember what Isaiah said. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Boy, is that the truth. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Man, is that the reality. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen, amen, and amen. So I don't propose for a minute to suggest that I understand all this. I don't. What I am suggesting is that the clear teaching of the Word of God is that God's promises will be fulfilled. That more specifically, His promises to Israel were not dependent upon all of those in Israel accepting them only some had to accept them for God to accomplish his purpose and that's what he's saying in this passage let me conclude by making three suggestions number one salvation is based on God's promise one of the great things that comes out of this passage is that it was not according to their performance it was according to God's promise. Paul makes the same point in Galatians chapter 5, verses 21 through 31. God has made a promise, and salvation is dependent upon that promise, which is another way of saying, I don't get to heaven because of anything I do. I get to heaven because of something Jesus Christ did. 
He died on the cross. He paid for my sin. And my salvation is based on the promise of God that he would save all who believe. Secondly, while it's based on God's promise, the promises and purposes of God are based on his sovereign choice. Now, we like the first part of this, but some of us squirm at the second. But I say again, it is the clear teaching of the Word of God. For many years of my Christian life, I rejected this truth. I didn't like it. But I finally came to the conclusion it is clearly what the Scripture teaches. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So on one level, I can say that salvation is dependent upon God's promise. <laughs> I can be just as dogmatic and say the promises and purposes of God are based on his sovereign choice. And this passage illustrates it well. Before they were born, God sovereignly chose Isaac. It had nothing to do with anything Isaac did. He wasn't even born yet. Yet God chose Isaac. Now that whole thing may disturb you theologically. But to once again return to Romans chapter 9, and to make the point that Paul is making in this chapter, in its context, my third observation is, the promises of God will never fail, and the purposes of God will be fulfilled. Now that ought to bring great comfort to your soul. Because you see, the promise we're talking about is that if you trust Jesus Christ, you will go to heaven. Romans 8:30. Whom he justifies, he also will glorify. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. That's a promise of God. How can you be so dogmatic about that? Real simple. God's promises have always been fulfilled and they have never been frustrated. Correctly understood, they have all been fulfilled and never one has been frustrated. But you say, look at the world, not even the majority have trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, that's playing a numbers game that God doesn't play. While it is true that he has told us to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we are responsible to do that, I must say it is clear from the Scripture that God has not chosen in his sovereign will to save everybody. That ought to be apparent. So you cannot charge him 
with failing to fulfill his promise because he never promised that. And the exact parallel to that in the book of Romans is you cannot charge God with failing to fulfill his promise to Israel just because Israel rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah when he came. Why? Because it was never God's intent to save all Israel to begin with. Illustration, Abraham had two sons. He chose one. Isaac had two sons. He chose one. Jacob had two sons, and he chose one. Now, that's a correct understanding of God's purpose and God's program. And God did exactly what he said he would do. Is God's side losing? Absolutely, categorically, dogmatically not. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. And what great comfort. Here's the promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. If you trust Jesus Christ, you are in, you have eternal life, and nothing will change that because it is a promise of God and God's promises have never failed and they have always been fulfilled. You say, wait a minute. All that sounded like a little bit of a contradiction to me. One minute you said it was God's sovereign choice and now you're telling me if I believe, I'm in. You got the message. I don't understand it either. Some years ago, Ray Stedman preached on this passage and he got down to the end and he prayed a prayer. That prayer is a beautiful illustration of the way I feel when I come to this passage. And with this, I close. Ray Stedman prayed, Our Father, once again, we have to admit we don't understand very much. We're finite creatures, and how much we feel it at this moment, we certainly are not gods, and we don't understand how you act, but we believe you are faithful to us, and that you tell us the truth, and that it does us good to seek to understand. We'll seek to do that, Lord, but keep us from being rebellious from charging you with injustice. Help us to be open and teachable in spirit that we might recognize the marvelous grace that has reached out to us and found us. Help us to understand what you are doing with the rest of the world as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, in our arrogance, we rebel at any suggestion that we are not masters of our fate. But in our more sober moments, we bow before you and recognize that you are a sovereign God that has always kept his word. Though, our Father, there is the part of us that wants to kick against the pricks when we hear this. There is that within us 
born of the Spirit of God, that is deeply grateful that you are sovereign, deeply thankful that you chose us. We confess and acknowledge that we do not deserve it. We certainly know we didn't earn it. We simply thank you that you've saved us by the blood of your Son, that someday we'll be in heaven with you because your promises fail not. Thanks, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.